Good morning, good morning, everybody. Uh, It's good to be with you. Um, So as Sue mentioned, we began our five-week journey through Lamentations last week uh, with Simon taking us through the destruction and destitution of Jerusalem described in sort of graphic and alarming detail in chapter one. Uh, And this week, our focus is going to be on chapter two, the second poem of the book. Now, generally in the West, we enjoy a a culture and a theology of celebration, don't we? We're comparatively wealthy and comfortable, and our quality of life is significantly higher than many hundreds of millions of people around the globe. Uh, But over this series, we're focusing our attention on lament, and to lament is to passionately express deep grief or sorrow. And the lament that we find here in the book of Lamentations is that, and so much more. It isn't simply a a cry against injustice and the struggles of life's dark seasons. It's also a form of protest here. It's a, a venting of anger from God's people against sin and sorrow and injustice. It's the voice of confusion and abandonment from within desperate suffering that prompts the people, and today us, to ask questions about God's character and his promises. And crucially, it's a voice that the Bible actually encourages us to use. You know, lament is part of Scripture. It's, it's here in the pages of our Bible. And so these human words of suffering that we're reading become part of God's word to his people, to us. And so because of that, they actually restore a sacred dignity to human suffering. Not that it's, it's welcomed or encouraged or that we seek it out, but that it is acknowledged and it's voiced. It is known and it is understood by God. So Lamentations chapter 1 is the voice of desperation and destitution in the wake of the city of Jerusalem having been raised to the ground. The real pain of the suffering, surviving people is voiced. But in this second chapter, God emerges as the main subject or the main character. It's he, we read, who has hurled down, who has swallowed up, slain, poured out his wrath, multiplied mourning and lament. It's the Lord who is the enemy. It's the Lord who is angry. And it's the Lord who is determined to tear down the wall of Zion. Every single line places God and his actions at the center of all that's occurred. He's used Israel's enemies to bring about judgment on Jerusalem. And so God's people are faced with a difficult and mystifying truth. What if God is the source of their suffering? What if their humiliation, their destruction... And their degradation was God's will. We're reminded here of Israel's history of rebellion. 
and that the fall of Jerusalem was the consequence of Israel's sin. And so this is God's wrath. And how we understand wrath is crucial, though, not only to our understanding of God's character and his heart, but also to the act and the, and the posture of lament itself. God's divine wrath is not God's volatile and uncontrolled anger. It is justice. Israel had violated God's agreement with them. And God's actions here reveal a constancy, an integrity of character and faithfulness to his own words and to the covenant that he made with his people. God's heart is not to destroy overflowing from God's heart is endless love and mercy. He is love in every perfect way. And so he is just in every perfect way. But judgment and mercy are not opposites, as we can often be led to believe, but they are complements. And we're reminded here that lament and prayer And grief are a crucial part of God's people, the journey of God's people in a broken world. And it doesn't mean for one second that it's okay. It doesn't mean that God is okay with hurt and brokenness and pain. But his judgment turns our hearts and our thoughts to where we have turned away from him where perhaps we have been blind or indifferent to or perhaps part of, knowingly or unknowingly, the brokenness, the injustice, oppression or or, or crooked values of the systems and the culture around us. Lamentations 2 reminds us that God is faithful to his covenant. His work of judgment and restoration are at his mercy and his will. God is just as sovereign in judgment as he is sovereign in restoration. And he is our present and our future hope. And we don't always get it. We, we often just don't get God. I mean, do you, do you often get God and what, what he does and why he does things and the timing he does things in? And I, I certainly don't. But God gets us to lament to him and with him, and he will never, ever discourage us from asking him to show compassion. Judgment and mercy are not opposites. They are compliments. They are companions, and they're friends. And this second chapter also doesn't explicitly speak of future hope and restoration for Jerusalem. It was meant as a a tool for public mourning and remembrance. And it's used today as as a way of recounting stories of the suffering and tragedy throughout Jewish history, including that of the Holocaust. But when such private grief and lament is brought to bear publicly and corporately, the act of suffering actually develops significance. When we weep with others, there we find more to our suffering than our own weakness or or sense of loss. We find a shared importance 
and significance to what we're going through. And it allows us to see our suffering, to, to really see it, acknowledge it, and to present it in all of its devastating gravity. Lamentations draws God's attention to the present suffering of the people. And it speaks into a present reality rather than a a future dream or or course of action. And its city lament is is not a time to dream of a better future, but rather to recognize the city that lies in ruins for the people. It's a suffering that's experienced together rather than in isolation. The loss of the home of God's people experienced and mourned collectively as community. And the destruction of of this home, of this city, is real. But I wonder where, for us today, our city is. Where is our city? Because this isn't an abstract concept for us, because injustice and oppression and the abandonment of the poor and the vulnerable in our society and in our world is real. Injustice in all its terrible forms is not an abstract concept, but it's an all too prevalent and known reality. And so where is our city, the peoples and places for whom we want to draw God's attention, his unwavering and merciful attention? Lamentations 2 also helps us to change the way that we see ourselves as part of this landscape of lament and suffering. The destruction of Jerusalem, the designated holy place for the presence of God with its glorious temple, has been plundered and lies abandoned. The people have wept and worship has been replaced with woe. The loss remains heavy in the air of chapter 2. And the state it now lies in is contrasted by the descriptions of its former glory in those first eight verses. The force needed to overcome this powerful city was the full force of God's power. And Jerusalem believed that as keeper of the temple, surely God would never judge them and his own temple of worship. But we read in verse 9 that the law is no more. Jerusalem's uniqueness was based on God's grace. The privilege, though, of providing the altar and the sanctuary has been rescinded. Perhaps God's people had thought only of the privilege and not of the responsibility. Perhaps the people of Jerusalem viewed themselves as as an exception And sometimes, as sinful people, we too can have an elevated view of ourselves. You know, surely we say there's no reason for God's judgment to fall on me. And so I think lament provides us with an opportunity for humility. Not not for self-destruction, but for, for humility. Do we hold so closely to our way of doing things, our culture, 
our projects, our programs and agendas, our way of doing church even in, in the wealthy, comfortable West that perhaps the alternatives are frowned on and looked down upon? Or do we recognize that places, structures, our own agendas need to get out of the way sometimes for the presence and the power of Almighty God to give us and all that we do meaning and intention and purpose? Because by his grace and his grace alone do we stand. God is in charge. God is faithful. God's actions and his character help to change the way that we see ourselves and the world around us. The different voices that we hear in chapter 2 and throughout the book stretch us to hear a voice beyond one or the one that we might feel most comfortable with hearing. You know, the voices are direct. We may sometimes wince at their bluntness as they express their pain. And that you, there's more than one voice recorded. Each one is important and given space to breathe and to be heard. And weaved throughout each voice we hear, if we listen closely enough, is sadness and confession, anger and confusion, and a declaration of God's compassion and promise, even though even though it's not being felt as those words pour out. Collectively, these voices represent and embody the suffering that is to belong to the whole community. Priests and rulers, children and infants, the, the suffering of all intricately and intentionally gathered together in the literal poetry of Lamentations to be infused with significance both individually and as a sum of its painful pieces. In the closing verses of this second poem, the prayer we read, if we look closely, reveals this underlying hope. Verse 19 says, Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. And so even here, even here, in the midst of the horror and the pain, the exiles have hope in God's righteousness, his and only his ability to make things right once again. God is true to his unfailing character. He is unfailingly just, and he is unfailingly true. God will be faithful to the promise of restoration. But there is an absence of explicit, obvious hope here in lamentation. Lamentations. One voice we don't hear is God's. But that doesn't mean he hasn't heard or that he won't respond. Because the unbearableness, the madness, the totally unjustness of suffering and pain has found expression and existence in real deep suffering. God 
has never and will never abandon us in the midst of that experience. It's where he chooses to be time and time again. And it's where he will always choose to be, suffering with us. Because the power of God isn't found in a focus and a fixation on on strength, but on suffering and weakness. You know, that's why we proclaim the Lord's death in, in words and liturgy and prayers at the communion table when we stand both individually and corporately as his body at the intersection of celebration and suffering. Christ was broken for us. And we're committed as followers of the risen Christ to celebrate his broken body so that we might be united in him for the reconciliation and the hope and the unity that only he can bring. To celebrate we must lament because celebration arises out of suffering and lament. That celebration is our way of expressing that suffering. In our world today, you know, in 2023, lamentations kind of just makes no sense because celebration will always be more attractive than having any kind of theology of suffering. You know, whatever is broken or not working in the way that we'd like, well, we want it fixed, and we want it fixed right now. You know, we want to kind of whoop and not to wallow in the healthiest sense. You know, we have to spread positivity everywhere all of the time. But life just isn't like that, is it? Not for us and not for our world. But what about if we as followers of Christ lovingly and sensitively offered to our suffering friends and neighbours those we love deeply and those we don't know personally? What if we offered our suffering nation and our suffering world the voice of lament? The voice of lament infused with hope and the opportunity for reconciliation. How would that transform our world? How would that transform us?